Welcome to the Christ Community Church Podcast. This teaching was recorded live during our weekend service in St. Charles, Illinois. We invite you to join us in person any weekend in St. Charles, DeKalb, Aurora, or Streamwood. Learn more at ccclife.org. And now, enjoy the message. When James Clear was a sophomore in high school, he played on the baseball team. And the, the very last day of the season, a baseball bat slipped from the grasp of one of his teammates, it flew into his face, it smashed his face, and the, the injuries were so extensive, it was obvious a local doctor could not treat him, so they put him on a helicopter and they whisked him to a big city hospital. And they found that he had broken bones throughout his face, his left eye was hanging on by a thread, his brain had been traumatized, and so there were r- r- repeated seizures going on. They had to put him in a self, uh, a medical-induced coma. Now, the good news was that James fully recovered from his injuries. Uh, the bad news was he had lost his ability to play baseball at that same level. And so he, he was on the team his junior and senior years, but a fairly mediocre player. Uh, when he went away to college, he was determined to, to change all that. And he decided that good habits, okay, good habits would be the path to success as an athlete and success as a student. And so while other guys on the team, you know, occasionally made it to the weight room as required, James worked out rigorously. Uh, While other students stayed up all night playing video games, he got to bed at an early hour, got all the rest his body needed. Uh, While others, uh, you know, you looked at their dorm room and it looked like a tornado had swept through, he kept his dorm room neat and tidy. While, while fellow students would occasionally study, he was always studying, hitting the books and, and uh, really going after it. And so by the time he graduated from college, uh, James was a straight-A student and the captain of the baseball team. In fact, ESPN named him an academic All-American. Good habits. And he took his love for habits then into the marketplace, into the business world. He began to study, research, habit formation. He became known as an expert on habits. And pretty soon he was speaking to pro sports teams and to major corporations. And, and today, today he has a newsletter, a habit for, formation newsletter that is subscribed to by over half a million readers. He's got an institute called Habits Academy. Good habits. Welcome to week one of a three-part series called The Whole 90 Habits That Will Change Your Life. Uh, We're going to be looking at habits in the areas of physical fitness and financial fitness and spiritual fitness. And the reason we're calling the series The Whole 90 is because it takes about 90 days, takes about three months for habits to become regular disciplines in our lives. And so I'll be encouraging you week by week throughout this series to establish some 90-day habits uh, in the areas of fitness that we're going to study together. Now, our textbook for this series, as always, is God's Word. So if you brought one of these with you, would you turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. 1 Corinthians 6, you find it in the New Testament portion, the second half of your Bible. And you may want to get your outline out as well, because we're going to cover some really practical stuff. You'll want to fill this in as we go. While you're looking for 1 Corinthians 6, just a word about James Clear's book, Atomic Habits. Uh, We're going to have this book available throughout the course of the three-week series at Resource, our bookshops across our campuses, just the very best book on habits you could possibly read. 
Uh, I, I will make a disclaimer. It's, not, it's a secular book. It's not a Christian book. So if you find something in there that doesn't square with the Bible, you know, just read with discernment. When Clayton and I, when we recommend books to go with our sermons, uh, we take it for granted that not everything you'll read, you'll come across in a book, will, will necessarily uh, you know, jibe with what you read in God's Word. And so you, you read as a discerning person. Atomic habits. He calls them atomic habits because he says... Habits are like atoms. They're small but mighty. They're small but mighty. Listen to what he writes. He says, we often dismiss small changes because they don't seem to matter very much in the moment. So if you save a little money now, well, you're still not a millionaire. If you go to the gym three days in a row, you're still possibly out of shape. If you study Mandarin for an hour tonight, you still haven't learned the language. So we make a few changes, but the results never seem to come quickly. And so we slide back into our previous routines. Unfortunately, the slow pace of transformation also makes it easy to let a bad habit slide. I mean, if you eat an unhealthy meal today, the, the scale doesn't move much. If you work late tonight and you ignore your family, they'll forgive you. If you procrastinate and you put your project off until tomorrow, there will usually be time to finish it later. A single decision is easy to dismiss. So his point is, habits are small. So sometimes habits are barely noticeable, but they're mighty. They're also mighty, and over time, they could produce significant results in our lives. And so today... We're going to consider how the right habits can lead to physical fitness. Okay, physical fitness. Three truths from 1 Corinthians chapter 6 about physical fitness. First truth is this. Physical fitness is a freedom issue. You write that down in your outline. A freedom issue. Let me read the first verse of today's text. It's 1 Corinthians 6 verse 12. You could follow along in your Bible or you could see the words on the screen. Paul, the Apostle Paul writes, I have the right to do anything, you say. I have the right to do anything, but not everything's beneficial. Yeah, I have the right to do anything, but I will not be mastered by anything. Let's stop there. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, God. Now, did you notice there's a phrase that's repeated two times in this verse? I have the right to do anything. And, and it's in quotes in your Bible, if you look closely. It's because Paul is quoting a familiar saying that was often used by Christ followers in the city of Corinth back in his day. Now, a little bit of background about the city of Corinth. The city of Corinth was a hustling, bustling city. In fact, it was the primary city in ancient Greece in the first century. It was a commercial center center of trade. It was, you know, people traveled through. There were two harbors in Corinth. There were crossroads in, in Corinth. So there was a lot of hustle and bustle and buying and selling and eating and drinking. And Corinth was also known as a city where sexual immorality uh, thrived. In fact, th th this was the place for the temple of Aphrodite, the goddess of love. And the temple was served at one time by over a thousand sacred prostitutes. It sounds like an oxymoron, doesn't it? Sacred prostitutes. But that was, that was Corinth. Anything goes in Corinth. That was the vibe of the city. I have the right to do anything. 
Now, unfortunately, this vibe had seeped into the church, and so Christ followers in Corinth were starting to echo the same thing. I have the right to do anything. You know, what I do specifically, what I do with my body, it has no bearing on my, my relationship with God. I can eat and drink whatever, I can sleep with whomever, and I can still maintain a walk with Jesus. Now, where did they get this idea? Scholars say it may have come from one of three sources. One is they had a mistaken notion of forgiveness. They just figured, well, I put my trust in Jesus. He paid the penalty for my sins on the cross, so I'm forgiven. I could do whatever I want. That mistaken notion, by the way, is still around today. Okay, I could live as I please, and God will forgive me. Another possibility for this, I have the right to do anything attitude, is it has something to do with the sweeping aside of some of the Old Testament laws. Some of the Old Testament laws had to do with a believer's identity markers. How would you be marked as a believer in Old Testament times? Well, it had to do with what you ate or didn't eat, kosher laws. It had to do with, with what you wore or didn't wear, what you touched or didn't touch. Now, when Jesus comes along, that all changes. Your identity is found in, in, in him. And so maybe the Corinthians, in sweeping aside the identity marker laws, swept aside all the moral laws as well. I have the right to do anything. Or maybe some scholars, says, scholars say maybe this was the beginning of a heresy that later became known as Gnosticism. Gnosticism comes from the Greek word gnosis, which means knowledge. And the Gnostics taught that you know, when it comes to spirituality, it's what's in your mind, it's what's in your soul. Your body has nothing to do with it. So do whatever ever you want with your body. And, and, and so maybe there was some incipient, some beginning stages of Gnosticism going on in, in, in Corinth. What is Paul's response to this? I have the right to do anything, reasoning. Well, Paul says, look again at verse 12 that I read a moment ago, last line, he says, okay, but I will not be mastered by anything. I will not be mastered by anything. When it comes to physical fitness, when it comes to what we do with our bodies, there are a number of bad habits that can master us. They, they could very subtly rob us of our freedom. Do you know what your bad habits are with respect to physical fitness? Okay, James Clear, in his book, he defines a habit as a behavior that has been repeated enough times to become automatic. Let me say that again. A habit is a behavior that has been repeated enough times to become automatic. And so because it's automatic, we don't always recognize our habits, especially our bad habits. James illustrates this in his book. He tells the story of a woman he knew. She was a sales clerk, and she had been instructed by her manager when anyone came and they paid for their purchase with a gift card, if their gift card was tapped out, she would then take the gift card and snip it in two. That was her job. And so one day, she's, you know, one customer after another is showing up with a gift card and paying for their purchase and maxing out their gift card. And so she'd take the gift card, snip it, take another gift card, snip it, take another gift card, snip it. And then someone paid with an actual credit card. Yeah, you know exactly where this is going. And so she swiped the card, she took out her scissors, snip, and the customer looked stunned. And the sales clerk looked stunned because she realized that she'd been operating on autopilot. 
And James Clear points out that's the trouble with our bad habits. We do them so automatically that we don't even realize when they have us in their grasp. They have mastered us. They've mastered us. We've forfeited our freedom to them. We don't even know it. So James says that the first step in developing good habits is to notice our bad habits. If you want to develop good habits, first step is to notice your bad habits. He even recommends that we start calling out our bad habits as we do them. So, for example, I'm pulling into the drive-thru line at Starbucks, and I call out. I say, I am about to order a foo-foo drink with tons of sugar in it that's going to add weight to my body and destroy my health. Hey, you call it out. You sit down in your recliner and you pick up the TV remote and you say, I haven't done any exercise all day, but I'm going to sit down and veg out for two hours in front of a stupid Netflix show. Hello? See how that works? You, you call it out. Now, what, what are the bad habits that are depriving you of physical fitness? Call them out. You know, refuse, like like Paul says in in 1 Corinthians 6, refuse to be mastered by anything. And then, listen to this, replace those bad habits with good habits. You know, isn't it ironic that we often look at good habits, we look at physical fitness disciplines as if they're going to take away our freedom. You know, they're, they're going to put us in a straitjacket. They're going to make our lives routine and boring. They're going to force us to do things we don't want to do in the moment. And, hey, we're free spirits. We love spontaneity. Good habits, physical disciplines would spoil our fun. Really? Let me illustrate that good habits do just the opposite of that. They enable us to enjoy life. I used to love to golf. When I was in middle school and high school, I golfed almost every day of the summer. And I would start the the summer off, I would go to the local country club golf course, and I would caddy for a couple of weeks, I'd make enough money, I'd purchase a season pass, and then I I would golf to my heart's content. And I loved it because I did it habitually. I did it again and again and again and again, so I got good at it. Now, today I hate golf. I never golf. And the reason is I can't do it with enough regularity, with enough habituality in order to be good at it. So my wife says to me, she goes, why don't you go golfing with your buds? You could have fellowship with them. I say, no, there would be no fellowship. They would be playing down the middle of the fairway and I'd be looking for my lost ball in the woods. Okay, this is not fellowship, dear. So you you follow my analogy here. I enjoyed golf way back when because I did it over and over and over again. And so I developed good habits. Good habits set us free to enjoy life. You know, when we're physically fit because we're eating right and we're exercising and and we're getting enough sleep, we, we have energy, we have the ability to do a lot of things that being out of shape robs us of. Physical fitness is a freedom issue. You get it? Good. Number two, physical fitness is a spiritual issue. Back to 1 Corinthians 6, pick it up at verse 13. You say, food for the stomach and the stomach for food, and God will destroy them both. 
Now, do you notice again the quotation marks around this verse? This is another popular saying in Corinth. You know, meaning, hey, what you do with your body doesn't matter. For example, example, whatever you eat and drink, what you put in your stomach doesn't matter because your body is destined to die anyway. It's going to be destroyed. You remember what I said a moment ago about Gnosticism? You know, the Gnostics taught that a person's spirituality, a person's relationship with God had to do with their mind, with their soul, not with the body. And their mind and soul, the Gnostics taught, are going to live forever but their body will eventually be buried and decay. So what you do with your body doesn't matter at all. Eat whatever, drink whatever, you know, exercise whenever, sleep with whomever. So what is Paul's response to this argument? Keep reading at verse 13, back to the middle of the verse. The body, however, is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord. Okay, your body is meant for the Lord and the Lord for the body. By his power, God raised the Lord. He raised Jesus from the dead and he will raise us also. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ himself? Okay, you're united with Christ if you've surrendered to Christ. Shall, shall I then take the members of Christ, our, uh, my body, and unite them with a prostitute? Never. So Paul has three rebuttals in these verses to the argument that what we do with our bodies doesn't matter because our bodies have nothing to do with our spirituality. Now Paul applies his three rebuttals specifically to the issue of sexual immorality. I mean, can we sleep with whomever we want because our bodies have nothing to do with our spirituality? No way, Paul says. So three rebuttals. And by the way, these three rebuttals will, will also apply to every area of physical fitness in our lives. Eating healthy, getting enough sleep, exercising. Paul is rebutting those who say, you know, these bad habits have no bearing on our spirituality. Rebuttal number one, it's in verse 13. He says, our bodies are meant for the Lord. Okay, if you're a Christ follower, when you surrendered your life to Jesus... Okay, the day you made the decision, I'm all in. I want your forgiveness. I want your new life. I want you to be king, to reign over every area of my life. Every area of your life includes your body. Okay, your body is meant for Jesus. And, and, and the lack of physical fitness in our bodies hampers our ability to serve him you know, because we're too out of shape or we're enslaved to physical fitness, bad habits. And let me illustrate what I'm talking about. That when we honor Jesus with, with, with our bodies, physical fitness enables us to serve him in ways we couldn't otherwise. Okay, in this illustration, it's going to seem perhaps a bit extreme to some of us. But hang in there with me. I, th I think it illustrates the point. A couple of weeks ago, I'm having breakfast with a good friend of mine. And we're at a local restaurant, I order first, I order my usual. It's an omelet with about 75 different things on it, okay? So I get bacon and cheese and mushrooms and the whole nine yards and I, I want my crispy hash browns on the side and a cup of coffee to wash it all down. And then it's my friend's turn to order and he holds up his glass of water and he says, I'm just gonna stick with this today. And so the waitress leaves, and I say, what's up with just water, dude? And he, he looks at me and doesn't want to answer initially, but I press him, and he says, 
I'm fasting for three days. I said, fasting for, going without meals for three days, like what gives? And he says, well, I've got a family across the street from me. My neighbor's across the street. I love these guys dearly, and their marriage is breaking up. In fact, the husband has already left the home. And so God has kind of prompted me to fast on their behalf and pray for their marriage, that God would restore it. And so when I go without meals, the hunger pain reminds me to pray. And the fact that I don't have to eat gives me the opportunity, the the time to pray. And I thought to myself, wow, would I ever do that? Would I ever go without meals for several days because God prompts me to pray for somebody in, in, in trouble? I mean, how, how can I go for meals without days when I can't even go without dessert on some days, right? See, when we're in control of our eating habits, when we can say no to them, we are free to serve Christ in ways we couldn't if we were enslaved to bad habits. Physical fitness, having control over our eating, our exercising, our resting, it has a direct bearing on our readiness to serve Christ. Serving Christ requires a certain energy level. It it requires a willingness to put up with with discomfort and inconvenience. It, It involves an attentiveness to others' needs. These are all byproducts of good physical fitness. So physical fitness is a spiritual issue. You know, my my body is meant for the Lord. Here's Paul's second rebuttal, okay? The the Corinthians are arguing that our spirituality has nothing to do with our bodies because our bodies are destined to die and decay anyway. So rebuttal number two, verse 14, Paul says, uh, no, death and decay are not the ultimate destination for our bodies. You know, just as God raised Jesus Christ from the dead physically... So God will raise us. If we're Christ followers, have put our hope and trust in Jesus, one day he will raise our bodies physically from the dead. Evidently, our bodies matter to God. See, Christianity is not a religion of disembodied spirituality. It's got to do with our bodies, too. Rebuttal number three. Look at verse 15. In this verse, Paul says, when we become Christ followers, we become united with him. Now think about that. His spirit comes to live on the inside. So everywhere we go with our bodies, we take Jesus with us. Everything we do with our bodies, we subject Jesus to that behavior. I mean, that's why Paul says here, and he's using an extreme example in verse 15. He says, so engaging with a prostitute, it ought to be unthinkable for a Christ follower. You're taking Jesus with you into her bed. Come on. Okay, if that's an extreme example, what might be some less extreme examples? If you're united with Christ, if his spirit has come to live in your body, what should you not do with your body? How about drink too much? How about lose valuable hours of sleep because you're binge watching your favorite TV show? How about going days without exercise? How about ordering sausage on your pizza when you already know you got a problem with cholesterol? See, Jesus lives on the what we do with our bodies matters. It's spiritual. 
This is why Paul says in Romans 12, verse 1, he says, I urge you, brothers and sisters, to offer your bodies, your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. What you do with your bodies is a spiritual matter. Third, physical fitness is an intentional issue. Now back to 1 Corinthians 6, one last time. Drop down to verse 19. Paul says, do you not know... And if you you got your own Bible underlined, do you not know? We're going to come back to that. Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. Now, that opening phrase of verse 19, do you not know? This is the third time that Paul has used this expression in this passage. Do you not know? Do you not know? Do you not know? See, it's Paul's way of saying, hello, I'm not telling you anything new. I mean, this is basic. This is foundational stuff that you should already know. Like what? I'll keep reading in verse 19. Do you not know your bodies are the temples of the Holy Spirit? It's just a reminder of what Paul said a moment ago. What we do with our bodies is a spiritual issue. It has a direct bearing on our relationship with God because God's spirit, if we're Christ followers, lives in our bodies. We're temples of the Holy Spirit. And and by the way, just an aside here, this is why if you're a Christ follower, you got a leg up when it comes to habit development over anybody who doesn't have the spirit of God on the inside because you have the power of almighty God at your disposal to break bad habits and develop good habits. The Holy Spirit of God lives on the inside. I mean, this is basic stuff that Paul assumes the Corinthians already know. Do you not know? Do you not know? And and then he moves on to one more bit of basic information that they should already know. Look look at the last line of verse 19, opening line of verse 20. Do you not know? You're, You're not your own. You were bought with a price. Paul is reminding the Corinthians that Jesus died on the cross for them. He's saying, this is basic. This is foundational. Now, let, let, let me recap, you know, this, this basic foundational truth. The, the Bible tells us that we have a nasty habit, every one of us. We have this tendency, built-in tendency, to go our way instead of God's way. I mean, all day long, every day, we choose our way over God's way. Even when we know God says, do this, we don't do it. When he says, don't do this, we do it anyway. And the, the trouble with this bent is that it disconnects us from God. And the trouble with getting disconnected from God is that God is the source of life. He's the giver of life. So when we go our way instead of God's way, you've heard me describe it before, it's like, it's like when your, your vacuum unplugs from the wall socket, it dies. So the consequence of our disobedience, what the Bible calls sin, is death. Spiritual, physical, eternal death. But God loves us so much, the Bible says, that he sent his son on a rescue mission to planet Earth. And Jesus was born in Bethlehem. He lived a perfect life. He then laid down his life on the cross to take the penalty for our sins. What's the penalty? Penalty's death. 
So Jesus dies the death we deserve to die, but he doesn't stay dead. Jesus is raised from the dead. He triumphs over the grave, and he lives today and can offer you. If you'll surrender your life to him, he offers you forgiveness. He offers you a brand new life that begins the moment you surrender to him. Have you ever consciously, deliberately, wholeheartedly surrendered your life to Christ? Do you, do you know that you've made this decision? Is there evidence in your life that you've made this decision to surrender to Jesus? Paul says, if this is true of you, if you've surrendered to Christ, guess what? You're not your own. You were bought with a price. Jesus paid for you with his blood on the cross. Now, Paul, Paul uses language here from the slave market of his day. Imagine this. There's a slave standing on an auction block, and he looks dispirited. He looks beat up. He's been abused by his former owner. He's put up for sale. And the bidding begins rather low, but then some guy in the back, he offers this ginormous, ridiculous amount. And he purchases this slave and takes the slave home and washes his wounds and bandages him him up and puts new clothes on him and gives him a hearty meal and says, you're now a member of this family. Paul says, that's what Jesus has done for you. You were on the slave auction block. You were enslaved to your sins, your disobedience, your wandering from God. Jesus paid for all that on the cross, a ginormous sum, his own life. And he washed you up. He cleaned you. You gave him your sin. He gave you his righteousness. The Bible says we're now clothed with the righteousness of Christ if we've surrendered to him. He's made you a member of his family. And then Paul concludes the argument with, so don't you think that Jesus now deserves your body? Honor God with your body. Doesn't it just make good sense? You know, the word honor in verse 20, it's, it's an imperative. It's a command. It's telling us to do something with our bodies, very intentionally do something that will honor God. Like what? Well, let's get real practical before we close. I'm going to suggest two broad physical fitness applications to today's sermon, okay? Two broad ways in which we can honor God with our bodies. Physical fitness is an intentional issue. It's not just thinking, yeah, we should get physically fit. It's doing something about it. Now, the two suggestions, the applications I'm going to make are not intended to be comprehensive. I am just priming the pump. I just want to, want to get you, you, you thinking, what could you do over the next 90 days to enhance your physical fitness, to honor God with your body? Okay, remember, the, the, the name of the series is The Whole 90. So, so over the next 90 days, between mid-February and mid-May, what could you do with your body to honor God? So here are my two broad applications. They have to do with food and exercise. Yeah, I just took these two issues. Application number one, for the next 90 days, eat right. And when I say eat right, I've got three things in mind. First, it means eat for the right reason. I mean, the right reason is your, your body needs food to survive. The right reason is you need to refuel. So go ahead and refuel. But we all know there are also wrong reasons to eat, right? Sometimes we eat because why? Because we're bored. 
Sometimes we go to the refrigerator or the cabinet and we open it up and we stand there and look. <laughs> Until our hand mysteriously reaches out and grabs something and we, because we didn't have anything else to do. So sometimes we eat because we're frustrated, we're upset about something, we're depressed, and we think that munching our way through a bag of potato chips is going to help. How does that work for you? See, it works good in the moment, and then you feel crappy afterwards, right? Sometimes we eat to celebrate. You say, oh, nothing wrong with that. There is nothing wrong with that. However, eating to celebrate becomes a Johnny One Note for us. It's like the only way some of us know how to celebrate. It's got to be celebrated with consuming massive amounts of pizza and cake and ice cream. Right? We, we don't know how to celebrate with, without connecting it to food somehow. So eat for the right reasons. You know, one of the things I learned from James... Uh, Clear's book is that we can curb our, our eating by asking ourselves the question before we eat what we're about to eat, why am I eating this? Why, am I eating it because I hope it excites me, because I hope it brings comfort, because I hope it soothes me? You, you know, am I looking to food to medicate me in some way when I should be looking to God for that? Eat right means eat uh, eat. The right for the right reasons. Secondly, it means eat the right amount. Eat the right amount. Back in 1984, 46% of Americans were overweight. What do you think the percentage is today? 72%. Okay, 72%. Experts say that obesity is the fastest growing disease in our country today, that it kills hundreds of thousands of Americans every year and costs billions of dollars in medical costs. How did this get to be such a big problem? Well, one of the major contributing causes is the amount of food we eat. Consider this example. Back in the 1950s, when McDonald's opened its doors, okay, if you went to McDonald's, here, here's what you would get. You would get a seven ounce soft drink, you would get a two ounce, two ounce bag of fries, and you would get this skinny little hamburger. Now, you get it for less than a buck, but that, that's what you got. Okay? Today, what does a McDonald's meal typically look like? A 20-ounce cup of sugar water. A, a small fries that is three and a half times the size of what fries used to be. And you don't settle for a skimpy little hamburger. You get a double quarter pounder with cheese. <laughs> you know the Bible calls that? Gluttony. Proverbs 23, verse 20 says that gluttony is as, listen, the Bible says gluttony is as bad as drunkenness or immorality. So we need to stop treating it as if, you know, it doesn't matter. And, and maybe we should include in our whole 90 habits for the next three months, if you're going to come up with some habits, how about these? Eating smaller portions of food each meal. Deliberately taking smaller portions or, or not going back for seconds. Or avoiding those restaurants that tempt us to overeat. So eat right. It means eating for the right reason. It means eating the, the right amount. And thirdly, it means eating the right foods. Now, I'm not a nutritionist, so I won't give you a list of good foods to include in your diet and bad foods to subtract. I think most of us know what is bad for us. But I will give, give you another tip, a habit-forming tip from James Clear, Clear's book, Atomic Habits. 
He makes the point that we are visually stimulated individuals. Okay, we see things and we want them. Okay, we've got five senses and we've got 11 million sensory receptors in our bodies. 11 million. 10 million of the 11 million are dedicated to sight. How about that? So what we see is really important to us. In fact, he says this is why Coke why Coke likes to sell its product on end caps at the store where we shop, because we're going to see it, and if we see it, we'll buy it. 40% of Coke sales are from end cap sales. How about that? So, so his advice is this. You want to break a bad habit? You, you want to start eating the right kinds of food that get the wrong kinds of food out of sight? Okay, get them off your kitchen counter. Get that bowl of whatever off your desk at work. Stop packing the Cheetos in your backpack for a school lunch, okay? Say, in fact, go to your cupboard, go, go to your refrigerator today, and just get rid of stuff you don't want to be tempted to eat over the next 90 days. Eat right. Eat right. The right reason, the right amount, the right foods. Application number two, exercise routinely. Now, I don't have time to go into this. going to wrap it up here. But I just, I, I won't give you any details, but I'll give you one closing illustration that I think will be really helpful. Uh, back in 2001, there was a, a research project that was done among people who wanted to exercise regularly. So they recruited 248 of these people, and they put them into three different groups. Group one, they called the control group. And for the next several weeks, this group was required to log every workout. So every time they, they worked out, they recorded it. Okay, group two was called the motivation group. They had to log every workout, but they also had to read materials on the, the physical benefits of, 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 of exercising with regularity. So it's good for your heart and gives you higher energy levels and so on. Group three was called the have a plan group, and the have a plan group had to log their workouts, had to read these uh, materials on the benefits of exercise, and... They had to come up with a plan. When and where and what kind of exercise are they going to do? You know, when? What, what day of the week? What time of the day are you going to do it? Where? You're going to do this in your basement on a treadmill? Are you going to do it at a, a local gym? Are you going to do it on the bike path in your town? Where are you going to do it? And then what are you going to do? You're going to lift weights? You're going to join a Pilates class? Uh, you, you're going to go walking? What are you going to do? So here are the results. Okay, after several weeks uh, of doing this, only 35 to 38% of the people in group, group one or group two exercised at least one time a week. Okay, that's about a third, which means two-thirds did squat. And what was really interesting is that there was no difference between group one and group two. So you could read all the motivational material you want, and it's not going to move you to do anything. Group three. They came up with a plan. 91% of the people in group three exercised at least one time a week. What does that tell you about having a plan? Okay, if you want to get somewhere habitually, you got to have a plan. You got to have a plan to eat right. You got to have a plan to exercise right because physical fitness is a freedom issue. It is a spiritual issue. And it's an intentional issue. 
What will your 90-day habits be? I encourage you, if you come with family to church, if you're here with members of your community group, talk with each other about what your plan is going to be over the next 90 days. Let me pray with you, and then we're going to collect our gifts and our offerings, and we're going to celebrate with a closing song. Would you pray with me? Uh, Lord God, this is really practical stuff. I'm always amazed by your word at its practicality. And the motivation, of course, is that Jesus laid down his life for us on the cross. He gave everything to us. May we honor you with our bodies in return. And for those who've never surrendered to you, may this moment, even now, be the moment in the quietness of their hearts where they say, okay, Jesus, I'm all in. I want the forgiveness and new life you offer. I turn from my sins. I turn to you. I want to learn what it means to follow you. We pray all this from our hearts in Jesus' name.